This podcast was recorded at Grace Point Church of Orville. For more information, visit us online at orogracepoint.com. Welcome to our new adult Bible study series, After You Believe, Why Christian Character Matters. Many Christians are convinced that obeying a simple list of do's and don'ts is the essence of morality, but they are mistaken. So are those who claim that following the heart is all that matters. The Bible teaches another path. The biblical path is one that involves transformation of character. This is the path modeled by Jesus. This is the path taken by the early church. And this is really the pathway of the gospel. In this series Over the next several weeks, we will be looking at Christian behavior in terms of virtue. Virtue is a quality that was very important in the distant past, but it's not something that's talked about much today. The Christian challenge, when you look at the Gospels, when you read the writings of the early church, boils down to this, the cultivation of Christian character. This comes about... Not through wishful thinking, not through idealistic imaginings, not by some one-off spiritual experience, but through the habits and practices of heart and life. In 1 Corinthians 5, 22 and 23, the nine fruits of the Spirit are listed. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How do these fruits grow and flourish? The author of our book that we're going to be reading, N.T. Wright, answers with a very appropriate metaphor. This is what he says. To get the fruit, you have to learn to be a gardener. You have to discover how to tend and prune, how to irrigate the field, how to keep birds and squirrels away. You have to watch for blight and mold. So my hope for this series is that we, as a community of believers who truly desire to follow after Jesus, to truly be his disciples, that we will come to a fresh appreciation and recognition that the purpose of our everyday lives as Christians goes much deeper than just trying to make it to heaven. I pray that we will come to not only recognize but embrace the call for our actions in everyday life to be evidence of a living and transforming faith within. Christian character doesn't come about by accident. It requires disciplined and rigorous practice. To start the series off, What I would like to do this morning is show you a brief video, just about 20 minutes, of a speech given by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of the United Kingdom. He is the recipient of the 2016 Templeton Prize. The Templeton Prize celebrates and rewards people who bring faith into the public sphere, uh, people who interact with science, with politics, all of these uh, various other disciplines. He does a marvelous job of sketching out in broad terms the contours of our own exploration. And after the clip, I have some comments 
about what he's going to say and to further frame our series that we're starting. But let's listen here for a few minutes to Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And thanks ultimately to God who believes in us so much more than we believe in him. Friends, I want tonight to look not back, to, but to look forward. And I want to chart new territory, if I may, tonight, and see what I see as the great challenge for us, for me, for my work, for perhaps all of us in the coming generation. You see, I want to define what I see as the central moral and spiritual challenge of our time. This is, I believe, a fateful moment in history. Because wherever you look, politically, religiously, economically, environmentally, there is insecurity and instability. It's not too much to say that the future of the West and the unique form of freedom it has pioneered for the past four centuries is altogether at risk. And I want tonight to look at one phenomenon that has shaped the West, leading it at first to greatness, but now, to crisis. And it can be summed up in one word, outsourcing. On the face of it, nothing could be more innocent or productive. It's the basis of the modern economy. It's Adam Smith's division of labor, David Ricardo's theory of comparative advantage that says, even if you're better than me at everything, which you probably are, still we both gain. If I do what I'm best at and you do what you're best at and we trade. And that has shaped the modern world. But the question is, are there limits? Are there things we can't or shouldn't outsource? The issue has arisen because of the new technologies and instantaneous global communication. So instead of outsourcing within a community, today we do it between economies. We've seen the outsourcing of production to low-wage countries. We've seen the outsourcing of services so that you could be, for instance, in one town in America booking a hotel room in another town in America unaware that your call is being processed in India. Now, this seemed like a good idea at the time. It was as if the West was saying to the world, here's a good division of the labor. You do the producing, we'll do the consuming. It was a lovely idea. But is that sustainable in the long run? Then banks began to outsource risk, lending far beyond their capacities in the belief that either property prices would go on rising forever or more significantly, if they crashed, it would be someone else's problem, not mine. But there's one form of outsourcing that tends to be little noticed, and that is the outsourcing of memory. Our computers and smartphones have developed larger and larger memories from kilobytes to megabytes to gigabytes, while our memories and those of our children have got smaller and smaller. In fact, why bother to remember anything at all if you can look it up in a microsecond on Google or Wikipedia? But here I think we made a mistake. We confused history and memory, and they're not the same thing at all. History is an answer to the question, what happened? Memory is an answer to the question, who am I? History is about facts. Memory is about identity. History is his story. It happened to somebody else, not me. 
Memory is my story, the past that made me who I am, of whose legacy I am the guardian for the sake of generations yet to come. Without memory, there's no identity, and without identity, we are no more than dust on the surface of infinity. And lacking memory, I think we forgot One of the most important lessons to have emerged from the wars of religion in the 16th and 17th century and the new birth of freedom that followed. Even to say it today sounds antiquarian, but here it is. A free society is a moral achievement. Without self-restraint, without capacity to defer the gratification of instinct, without the habits of heart and deed that we call virtues, we will eventually lose our freedom. That's what John Locke meant when he contrasted liberty, the freedom to do what we ought, with license, the freedom to do what we want. It's what Adam Smith signaled when, before he wrote The Wealth of Nations, he wrote the theory of moral sentiments. It's what Washington meant when he said human rights can only be assured among a virtuous people. And Benjamin Franklin, when he said, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. And Jefferson, when he said, a nation as a society forms a moral person and every member of it is personally responsible for his society. At some point, the West abandoned this belief. When I went to Cambridge in the late 60s, that moment which Heather so beautifully recalled, The course I was studying, which is today called philosophy, was then called moral sciences. Meaning that just like the natural sciences, morality was objective, real, part of the external world. But I soon discovered that almost nobody believed this anymore. Morality was, I learned, no more than the expression of emotion or subjective feeling or private intuition or autonomous choice. It was within limits whatever I chose it to be. In fact, there was nothing left to study but the meaning of words. To me, this sounded less like civilization than the breakdown of a civilization. And it took me years to discover, to work out what had actually happened. And here, I believe, is what happened. Morality had been split in two and outsourced to other institutions. There were moral choices, and then on the other hand, there were the consequences of our choices. Morality itself was outsourced to the market. The market gives us choices. And morality itself is just a set of choices in which right or wrong have no meaning beyond the satisfaction or frustration of desire. The result is that today we find it increasingly hard to understand why there might be something that I want to do, can afford to do, have a legal right to do, and that nonetheless I should not do because it's unjust or dishonorable or disloyal or demeaning. In a word, unethical. Ethics has been reduced to economics. As for the consequences of our choices, These were outsourced to the state. Bad choices lead to bad outcomes, failed relationships, neglected children, depressive illness, wasted lives. But the government would deal with it. Forget about marriage as a sacred bond between husband and wife. Forget about the need of children for a loving, 
and secure human environment. Forget about the need for communities to give us support in times of need. Welfare was outsourced to the state. As for conscience, that once played so large a part in the moral life, that could be outsourced to regulatory bodies. So having reduced moral choice to economics, we transferred the consequences of our choices to politics. And it seemed to work, at least for a while. But by now, problems have arisen that just cannot be solved by the market or the state alone. To mention just a few, the structural unemployment that follows the outsourcing of production and services. The further unemployment that will come when artificial intelligence increasingly replaces human judgment and skill. Artificially low interest rates that encourage borrowing and debt and discourage saving and investment. Wildly inflated CEO pay. The lowering of living standards, first of the working class, then of the middle class, the insecurity of employment, even for graduates, the inability of young families to afford a home, the collapse of marriage leading to intractable problems of child poverty and depression, the collapse of birth rates throughout Europe leading to unprecedented levels of immigration that are now the only way the West can sustain its population, and the systemic failure to integrate some of those groups. The loss of family, community, and identity that once gave us strength to survive unstable times. And there are many other problems. Why are they insoluble? First, because they're global and governments are only national. Second, because they're long-term. While the market and liberal democratic politics only deals in the short term. Third, because they depend on changing habits of behavior, which neither the market nor the liberal democratic state are mandated to do. But above all, because they can't be solved by the market and state alone. You can't outsource conscience. You can't delegate moral responsibility away. When you do, when you say somebody else will deal with it, you raise expectations that cannot be met. And when inevitably those expectations are not met, society becomes freighted with disappointment, anger, fear, resentment, and blame. People start taking refuge in magical thinking, which today takes one of four forms, the far right, the far left, religious extremism, and aggressive secularism. The far right seeks a return to a golden past that never was. The far left seeks a utopian future that never will be. Aggressive religious extremists believe you can bring salvation by terror. Aggressive secularists believe that you get, if you get rid of religion, there will be peace. These are all fantasies, and pursuing them will endanger the very foundations of freedom. Yet we've seen even in mainstream British and American politics forms of ugliness I never thought I would see in my lifetime. And we've seen in university campuses in Britain and America the abandonment of academic freedom 
in the name of the right not to be offended by being confronted by views with which I disagree. This is le trahison d'éclair, the intellectual betrayal of our time. And it is very dangerous indeed. So is there another way? I believe there really is. Two historical phenomena have long fascinated me. One is the strange fact that having lagged behind China for a thousand years, the West overtook it in the 17th century, creating science, industry, technology, the free market, and the free society. How did that happen? The second is, no less strange, the fact that Jews and Judaism survived for 2,000 years after the destruction of the Second Temple, having lost every single thing on which their existence was predicated in biblical times. They lost their land, their home, their freedom, their temple, their kings, their prophets, and their priests. And the explanation in both cases is the same. And it is the precise opposite of outsourcing. Namely, the internalization of what had once been external. So, for instance, though Jews had lost their land, Jerusalem, the temple, nonetheless, they rebuilt them in the mind. Wherever in the world Jews prayed, there was the temple. Every prayer was a sacrifice. Every Jew a priest, every community a fragment of Jerusalem. Something similar happened in strands of Islam that interpreted jihad not as a physical war on the battlefield, but as a spiritual struggle within the soul. And it's something very similar that happened within Christianity after the Reformation, especially in the Calvinism that in the 16th and 17th centuries transformed Holland, Scotland, England of the Revolution, and America of the Pilgrim Fathers. In fact, it was that to which Max Weber famously attributed the spirit of capitalism, i.e. the external authority of the church was replaced by the internal voice of conscience. And that internalized conscience made possible the widely distributed networks of trust on which the smooth functioning of the market depends. We're so used to contrasting the material and the spiritual that we sometimes forget that the word credit comes from the Latin credo, which means, I believe, anima amin. We sometimes forget that confidence that requisite of investment and economic growth comes from fidentia, the Latin for faith or trust. What emerged in Judaism and in post-Reformation Christianity was the rarest of character types, the inner directed personality. Most societies for most of history have either been tradition directed or other directed. People do what they do because that's how it's always been done or because that's what other people do. Inner directed types are different. They become the pioneers, the innovators, the survivors. They have an internalized satellite navigation system so they aren't scared of uncharted territory. They have a strong sense of duty to others. 
They try to have secure marriages. They hand on their values to their children. They belong to strong communities. They take daring but carefully calculated risks. And when they fail, they have rapid recovery times. They have discipline. They enjoy tough challenges and hard work. They play it long. They're more interested in sustainability than quick profits. They know they have to be responsible to customers, employees, and shareholders, as well as to the wider public, because only thus will they survive in the long run. They don't do stupid things, like creative accounting, or subprime mortgages, or falsified emissions data, because they know you can't fake it forever. They don't consume the present at the cost of the future, because they have a sense of responsibility for the future. They have the capacity to defer the gratification of instinct, and they do all this because they have an inner moral voice. Some call it conscience. Some call it the voice of God. Cultures like that stay young. They defeat entropy, the loss of energy, they dispelled the decline and fall of every other empire and superpower in history. But somehow the West has, in the immortal words of Queen Elsa in Frozen, I hope you get my rabbinic reference here, the West has let it go. It has externalized what it once internalized. It has outsourced responsibility. Is reduced ethics to economics and politics, which means we are dependent on the market and the state forces we can do little to control. And one day, our children or grandchildren or theirs will turn back and ask, how did the West lose what once made it great? Every observer of the grand sweep of history from the prophets of Israel to the Islamic sage Ibn Khaldun, from Giambattista Vico to John Stuart Mill, from Bertrand Russell to Will Durant, has said essentially the same thing, that civilizations begin to die when they lose the moral passion that brought them into being in the first place. It happened to Greece and Rome and it can happen to the West. The sure signs are these. A falling birth rate, moral decay, growing inequalities, a loss of trust in social institutions, self-indulgence on the part of the rich, hopelessness on the part of the poor, unintegrated minorities, a failure to make sacrifices in the present for the sake of the future, a loss of faith in old beliefs and no new vision to take their place. These are the danger signals and they are flashing now. There is an alternative to strive to become inner directed again. This means recovering the moral dimension that links our welfare to the welfare of others, making us collectively responsible for the common good. 
It means recovering the spiritual dimension that helps us tell the difference between the value of things and their price. We are more than consumers and voters. Our dignity transcends what we earn and own. It means remembering that what's important isn't just satisfying our desires, but also knowing which desires to satisfy. It means restraining ourselves in the present so that our children may have a viable future. It means reclaiming collective memory and identity so that society becomes less of a hotel and more of a home. In short, it means learning that there are some things we cannot or should not outsource, some responsibilities we cannot and should not delegate away. We owe it to our children and grandchildren not to throw away what once made the West great. And not for the sake of some idealized past, but for the sake of a demanding and deeply challenging future. If we do simply let it go, if we continue to forget that a free society is a moral achievement that depends on responsibility and restraint, then what will come next, be it Russia or China or ISIS or Iran, will neither be liberal nor democratic, and it will certainly not be free. We need to restate the moral and spiritual dimensions in the language of the 21st century using the media of the 21st century to inspire, to give hope, and to unite. The moral and spiritual dimensions of human flourishing are what the Templeton Prize and the Templeton Foundation have always been about. And I pray and I hope that it will be by developing these things, themes globally, together with others, over the coming years, that I hope I can repay a little of the honor you have bestowed on me today. Thank you. What a fantastic, fantastic talk, no? Yeah, I understand you may not agree with everything the rabbi said, but I hope you were able to hear his key points, which were spot on. This is the question that we will be exploring in this series about Christian character. Are we truly interdirected people? Do we live our lives because we are convinced of certain truths and realities? Or are we tradition-driven, other-driven? Right? There are plenty of Christians that their rationale every Sunday and their rationale for their actions during the week is, this is the way we've always done it. I'm not exempting people from within our own particular tradition. We have plenty of traditions. We have plenty of sacred cows that we've long forgotten the reason we even do it. It's just, well, this is what the old-timers did, and we've got to keep doing it. That's not Scripture. That's not Bible. Tradition tells us where we have come from. Scripture, however, is a better guide as to where we should be going. Jesus and his early followers were not often accused of being too traditional. Quite the opposite, in fact. So are we inner-driven or tradition-driven or other-driven? And this other-driven perspective is the one 
in which uh, the community of faith lives its life or the individual within the community of faith lives their life based on what other people or culture expects. If we want to be disciples of Jesus, we cannot take our cues from culture or tradition. We need to be inner-directed people. This is the capacity that will allow us to successfully meet the challenges of a changing world, of new circumstance, of new conflicts and new opportunities. This capacity for inner-directedness comes about through the renewal of our minds. It comes about when Christ is formed in us. As Christians, we live our lives in this in-betwixt time between our conversion, our baptism, and our funeral. And it's easy to get preoccupied during that time with who gets into heaven. But the real challenge is, how are we going to live in the here and now? And part of that challenge can be met by seeking to be inner-directed. In the words of Rabbi Sachs, this means recovering the moral dimension that links our welfare to the welfare of others. Recovering the spiritual dimension that helps us tell the difference between the value of things and their price. It means restraining ourselves in the present so that our children may have a future. It means learning that there are some things that we cannot and should not outsource. There are some things that we cannot and should not delegate. We cannot outsource conscience. We cannot outsource or delegate moral responsibility. We need to be transformed. So for the next several weeks, we will be using N.T. Wright's book, After You Believe, as our launch pad, as we explore this biblical call for revolution, a transformation of character that takes us beyond our pursuit of money, sex, power, into a virtuous life that reflects God's character that honors one another so that we may live in a more worshipful, fulfilling, loving manner. This series is for anyone who is hoping that there is something more while we're here on earth. The kingdom of God does not come about by doing what we've always done. It doesn't come about by doing as others do. It comes by sincerely praying, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. And then allowing the Spirit to transform our inner being. It's about learning to walk in the Spirit daily. Those habits and practices that will shape us into the image and the likeness of our teacher, our redeemer, our savior. Friends, we don't need magical thinking. We need our inner person to be transformed so that our lives will reflect the value and character of the world to come in this present world. God is not finished changing lives. He's not finished changing families. He's not finished changing communities. And we have a role to play in that 
ongoing work of reconciliation and redemption. He needs men and women of character. So, if you want to read along, pick up your copy of the book in the foyer, and we will be reading chapter 1 in advance of next week's lesson. For all of our parishioners out there, we want you to read along with us as well. So, if you go to our website, under the updates section, there should be a little blurb about the series, including a link to the book on Amazon, so that you can order your copy and read along with us. Again, I'd encourage you, email us, let us know how it's going, your own experiences, your testimonies. You're part of us, even if you're distributed hither and thither. So, the Lord bless you. Happy reading, and I'm excited about this great series and what God can do in and through the lives of people who are willing to let God transform their character. Thank you for listening. Our podcasts are made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. To hear more, visit us online at orogracepoint.com.